Welcome to 100 Days in Mexico, the story of how a 100-day solo road trip surfing my way down the Pacific coast of Mexico changed my life forever. Ready to go on a road trip? Strap in, let's do this. Episode 25, Bell of the Ball, Day 36. After a few weeks in Acapulco, binging at the buffet of malattention, the pull for the road and new adventure was getting to me. I packed up and headed deeper south. The farther south I traveled, the more wild things became. I heard the whispers of an island, accessible only by boat, blessed with great waves. I was told the local families rented cabanas on the beach and opened their homes to serve food to the handful of backpackers and traveling surfers who found their way there. My guidebook listed the surf break as well, but warned that the road to the boat launch was washed out and only accessible by 4 by 4 It seemed like an invitation to me. I had heard rumors of this place from other surfers. Fabled to have perfect waves, barreling waves of up to 400 yards, the tiny island was surf lure, recounted in quiet whispers, uttered over post-surf beers. One always employs hushed tones to describe the uncrowded waves. Five hours after leaving Acapulco, I encountered a small sign pointing down a dirt road off the main highway. The sign bore the name of the town I wanted to find. I pulled over to check my map. This seemed to be it. A little old lady waved at me from a corner store, so I waved back. She picked up her basket, woven, full of market purchases, and headed for my passenger door. She opened the door and hopped in. Apparently, waving at little old ladies gets you hitchhikers in this town. My Spanish was still pretty basic, but I was pretty sure she said she lived in the town where the boats were launched to go to the legendary island. She said the road was passable, and she would show me the way. Score! When I dropped off La Abuela, she insisted I sit for a while in her hammock. She showed me around her homestead, a thatched roof bamboo hut, a yard full of dogs and chickens. She gave me avocados from her yard as a thank you, and directions to the boat launch. As I pulled up to the launch, several young men waved me into parking areas, hustling for boat clients. I went with the first one, parking behind the gate. I was informed that my car and belongings would be watched 24-7 at a price of $2 per day. At least that is what I thought, he said. I hoped I wasn't getting all my stuff ripped off. I asked if there was surfing on the island, but I couldn't comprehend the response. I asked if there were accommodations on the island, and understood none of that answer either. I would find out later that the islanders spoke an Afro-influenced dialect. They were impossible for me to understand. I tried asking another kid, but again found the reply unintelligible. So I grabbed all three of my boards, camping gear, dog food, and a backpack. I loaded the tiny panga with way too much stuff. We made the crossing and I paid the 75 cent toll as I was dumped on the shore with a pile of bags, a yapping puppy, 
and no clue what to do next, or if I was even in the right place. I loaded myself up like a Sherpa and headed across the soft sand, carrying a hundred pounds of gear and the dog. The sand was far too hot for her paws, pushing through the sweltering heat. I crested a dune, sweat dripping into my wide eyes. Boom. There, on the other side of the beach, a massive, perfectly formed, hollow wave raced before me. The winds were blowing straight offshore, the good direction. Only two surfers inhabited the water. An uncrowded, hollow wave almost doesn't exist anymore. My heart raced. I continued my trek across the beach, arms so full I was unable to swat at the mosquitoes who undoubtedly smelled fresh gringa meat and swarmed around my legs. Finding a clump of cabanas, I dumped my stuff in front of the first one. The proprietor came out to negotiate a price with me. I had no idea what she was saying. It might as well have been Arabic. I was clueless. Eventually, through sign language, I understood the room was $5 per night and there was no bathroom. I assumed that meant the bathroom was shared. It did not mean that. There indeed was no bathroom. Unless you counted the bare toilet bowl. No tank, no seat. Screened on two sides by a piece of aluminum siding and flagrantly open on the other two sides. A large drum filled with flesh water, fresh water was provided for rinsing. The idea was that you would squat, and after you had done your business, you would locate the 50-gallon drum full of water and use a bucket to flush. It was the same bucket and the same water you used to shower. Completely unaware of the flushing protocol, I skipped the step a couple of times and eventually was given a polite demonstration by the proprietor. The woman showed me to my room, which was behind her restaurant. Nominally a restaurant, it was really just an awning made of palm fronds, an extension of her own kitchen, where she served a traveler or two per day. As we walked to my room, the stench of rotting fish filled the air. Looking down, I summarized that we were walking through the area where she dumped her food waste for the feral chickens to pick through. My dog, Mika, exuberantly held half a dead fish in her mouth. The reality of my situation was sinking in. I literally was giving up every bit of control over creature comforts for the sake of surfing. And it didn't bother me in the least. I paid the woman for a week and tried to cram my nine-foot longboard into a room that itself was about nine feet by nine feet. I waxed up the board and headed out to catch some empty waves. The rip current was strong. It took me almost no time to reach the breaking waves, about a third of a mile offshore. I got myself in position and took off on one of the smaller sets. It closed out, breaking all at once, leaving me no exit. I plunged into the depths and relaxed my body as I waited for the impact of the next wave to pass. Resurfacing, I reeled in my board by the leash. I climbed on top, 
just in time to see another wave coming at me. This one was not one of the smaller waves. This one was as tall as a house and was about to hit me with all its force. I knew there was no getting over or under this wave with my board, so I ditched the board and I dove under. Once again, I waited for the impact to pass. When it did, still underwater, I searched for my leash to climb my way back to the surface. I found the leash and gave it a tug. The feeling of no resistance when you pull on your leash is one of the most sickening things I've ever experienced. My heart drops into my stomach and sits there, burning in stomach juices, making me want to vomit. It is like standing naked in an open field, surrounded by snipers. You just know you're going to die. You just know it. With nothing to pull me to the surface, I kicked my way up and gulped in air. I could see my board bouncing in the white water a hundred feet in front of me. There was no getting it back before the next wave would take it away. I could see another massive wave about to drill me, this time with no flotation strapped to me. I spied another surfer, boardless, also white-faced and wide-eyed. The same powerful wave had broken both our leashes. Boom! The next wave drilled us and the next two waves behind that one. Control? What control? I body surfed the best I could. The rip was strong and the waves kept coming. The swim in took about 20 minutes. I have no problem swimming laps for 20 minutes in a pool, but when you have to hold your breath for 15 seconds out of every 30 while getting ragdolled underwater, it makes for a feat of athleticism. I was in survival mode. As I swam, I noticed a young Mexican man standing on the beach with my surfboard. His eyes were fixed on me. He stood like a statue, ready to come to my aid at any moment, but giving me the dignity to save myself. His gaze gave me confidence. Finally putting my feet down onto the sand, I saw the gazing man was handsome and chiseled. He smiled as I approached, coughing and exhausted. He handed my board back to me and pulled out two beers from the sand, buried to keep them cold. The beers had been waiting for me to conclude my battle. Felicidades, Oscar encouraged. Handing me one of the two beers. Está bien pesado hoy. Buen hecho. He said the conditions were heavy today and that I had done well. I felt a little embarrassed. But his massive smile made me feel better. He invited me to join him that night for another beer at the lone bar on the island of 300 inhabitants. I agreed. In the bar, I spotted a 10-foot vinyl poster of Oscar getting the barrel of his life. A major surf brand logo was emblazoned across the bottom left corner. My personal lifeguard was also the pride of the island. The bar was packed and every head lifted at Oscar's entrance, or perhaps they were looking at the tall, thick blonde with him. 
the sound system blasted traditional music of La Banda, and people were dancing. Oscar introduced me to everyone. It was too loud to hear. I couldn't understand anything anyway. It didn't matter. Control? What control? He passed me from dance partner to dance partner, and before I knew it, it was 4 a.m. Something about that night I will never forget. Maybe it was getting to be part of the local culture, or getting to be the belle of the ball with the hometown hero. Maybe it was the near-death and resurrection experience. Maybe it was giving up control completely and being born into something new. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, you can head over to 100daysinmexico.com and check out the insider section where I record a behind-the-scenes video for each episode. In these videos, I answer questions like, did you ever actually send that letter to Kurt? Or whatever happened to that guy? Did you see him again? Or where is your puppy now? So for the answers to these questions and an insider's behind the scene look at every episode, head on over to 100daysinmexico.com and sign up to become an insider. It's about the cost of a latte per month and there's a whole lot of value in there. Until next time. Thank you.